your Bible to Luke chapter 19. I promised you that we're going to look at the kingdom, the kingdom of God. There's a lot of stuff that's going on when it comes to the kingdom of God in the churches, especially evangelical churches over the last 20, maybe 30 years. Brian Godawa, a writer who wrote a lot of books about biblical stuff, he said, there is plenty of talk in these days in the churches and outside of churches about changing your life or changing the world. That's end the quote. He said, but the problem is we want to change it the wrong way. How many of you know, if you want to see changes in your life, you need to have Jesus Christ. He is the changer. And if you want the power of the living God in your life, you need the Holy Spirit's power, the resurrection power, to make that happen. Any other thing, obviously, is a futile expression of self-made help. In Luke chapter 19, we're going to follow Jesus. He is now on his way into Jerusalem, just before he spends the last week. And it's called the triumphal entry. We're going to begin reading in Luke 19, verse 28. And this is what Luke is writing. Remember, Luke is one of those writers God used to pen one of the Gospels who is not of Jewish upbringing. He's a Gentile. He's like you and me who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can understand how he writes because he is speaking our language. He says, and when he had said these things, we're going to look at what that means, these things. We went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Listen, Luke was in the midst of that. That's why he said, when we went. He said, when we drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, or what we know as the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Circle that in your Bible. He said, the Lord has need of it. He doesn't say the king of the Jews has need of it. He said the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And thus they were untying the colt. Its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing the cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread the cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples, he answered. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. We could stop there, but I want to read a little bit further. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, 
Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Remember, they were just praising Jesus as the king. When he ordered his disciples to get the colt, he said, the Lord has need of it. But when the people shouting, they shouting, listen to this. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The very Lord was sinning under cult, but they were looking for a Davidic king. And the Lord was in the midst. And Jesus said, Oh, if you would have over, ever known, he said, but you cannot see it, your eyes are closed. Your eyes are closed. So this morning I give you the first installment of when we look at the kingdom, because the kingdom of God is misunderstood. There are a lot of famous preachers in America. They preach the kingdom of God like the kingdom would have already been established on this earth. The kingdom of God is not established on this earth. The kingdom of God is in your heart. As you have learned Wednesday, the king is wherever the kingdom is, and the kingdom is wherever the king is. And the king does not saying that he's going to come with observation. He said he's going to be in you when the Holy Spirit came. The only kingdom the world will ever see or the reflection of it is born-again believers. The kingdom is not on this earth. We cannot claim kingdom authority. The kingdom is not of this earth because the king is not here yet. The king will come. And when the king will come, the world is not going to like it. We need to sort that out so we're not going to fall into a trap where we claim things which God has never given us, proclaiming things God has never said to proclaim. And when we have our eyes focused on the kingdom theology only, or kingdom now theology, there's a great danger. And the danger moves right into the arms of Satan. That is, we're focusing on the kingdom and not on the souls that are still lost. And we have to preach the gospel that they can be saved and be brought in. So now we have the churches today talking about kingdom now. We're kingdom children, we're kingdom, kingdom, kingdom. And the lost go straight to hell. Go and preach the gospel. Not the kingdom, preach the gospel. That's good news. That's why Jesus rode into Jerusalem. That's why he came. That's why he suffered. That's why he rose again. And if you miss this, my friend, we got big theological problems. I call it the theocratic administrator. That's what Jesus was, the second Adam. Let me bring you back to the 21st century for a second, just to see where that all goes. On February 25th, just a few weeks ago, this year, our House of Representatives debated the Equality Act, 
which among many other things would explicitly prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. During that debate, Representative Jerry Nadler was encouraging his colleagues in the House to vote in favor of that act. But from the Congress, a voice spoke out and criticized the legislator that is being debated. This is what the man says. He said, the, con the gender confusion that exists in our culture today is a clear rejection of God's good design. Whenever a nation's law no longer reflects the standards of God, that nation is in rebellion against him and will inevitably bear the consequences. Rep. Craig Stubbe from Florida. He said it right. But there is a response from Jerry Nadler. He pushes back. And this is what he said. Because there's a lot of stuff that goes on on social media, they're misquoting him. And by misquoting that man, we give the enemy a foothold to attack the real deal. So let's be, I listen very carefully to every word the man said when it comes to this. This is what he said. It's a literal uh, quote. What any religious tradition describes as God's will is no concern to this Congress. End of quote. That's what he said. So why do I bring that up? It is so interesting that Jerry Nadler is a Jew. Most people don't know that. He's Jewish and he rep represents the nation's largest and heavily Jewish district, the 10th district of New York. A Jew who grew up in the Jewish community, ought to know better. When the Jewish people rejected the Messiah when he rode into Jerusalem, that spirit has not left this earth. Here is a representative, a Jewish man, who has a high office in the United States of America and still rejects the Messiah. That tells me that the kingdom could not possibly be on this earth because when the king arrives, all the Jewish people will see whom they are pierced and will accept him. Every day, you and I, when we live, we can see what's going on in the world and we can see it's not possible that the king has arrived. Keep that in mind. When I titled the sermon Theocratic Administrator, the question obviously is, what does that mean? Fancy words he's using again. Well, let me give you Britannica's expression. They said, theocracy is a form of government. It is a government by divine guidance or by officials who are regarded as divinely guided. Listen, the church is not the only one. Okay. Contemporary examples of theocracies include Saudi Arabia, Iran, and the Vatican. Interesting is that Britannica never says the church. The only one that truly would fit the picture. Isn't that amazing? This is what we read today when we go and research things on a public website.
The problem with those contemporary theocracies is they be divinely guided by a fallen Elohim and not by God. I wrote down for you so you can see it. When it comes to biblical revelation, the technical term for this hierarchy where God rules over man who in turn governs creation on God's behalf is the office of theocratic administrator. Listen carefully. This term simply refers to someone who governs for God. In other words, God ruled the world indirectly through the first Adam. The question is, what did God hand over to the first Adam? He should represent God well with. I think for us to understand, we need to go back to Genesis. Because the people in Jerusalem had no idea why the Messiah was there. Because when they were shouting, they were not shouting for a Messiah, they were shouting for a king. And the Jewish people still today are waiting for a representation of King David's dynasty who will sit on the throne, a physical king that will rule and reign the world. Not knowing. That one is not coming from the earth. He's coming from heaven down to earth. When they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, they showed their blindness. Jesus immediately looks at Jerusalem and cries over the city, knowing their blindness will make them so stubborn that they can't see anything. So, let's get into the study. That was the introduction. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. Well, let's read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, 27, and 28 in an entirely different light. I said many times, if we haven't studied Genesis, it is so difficult to understand the rest of the Old and New Testament. It's locked in there. When you lay a foundation, how many of you know the foundation of the house is the most important thing? So when God lays the foundation in Genesis, he tells us anything that's going to be built upon it is based upon that foundation. You cannot destroy that foundation. God laid it. This is the biblical story of the kingdom beginning. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image our, after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And listen to this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion. And now he lays out dominion over how much? Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. See that? That moves on the earth. 
Notice how God gave authority to Adam and Eve over the physical realm. We said again. Notice he gives some authority over the physical realm. How many of you have last seen the birds and all these things? They belong to this earth. How do we know that God made Adam the theocratic administrator? Vesting such authority into a man, and the woman, by the way, too, they were the co-reign together, tells us that God fully authorized and empowered them to do so. I You get, give somebody a task to do. You have to give them the authority to do it. Anytime you give a child a chore and you don't give them the authority what needs to be ha had in order to fulfill the task is a manipulative action. Everywhere in the world. If you assign somebody a position that comes with a job description, if you're the boss, you need to give them the authority and the power and the tools to accomplish it. Or else you set them up for failure. That's exactly what God did. He gave Adam everything he needed. How do we know that Adam actually could fulfill it? It's very, very interesting. The Hebrew scholar Arnold Fruchtenbaum has it in his book, in the book of Genesis. He has the subtitle Exposition from a Messianic Jewish Perspective. He is a born-again Jew, and he has a very good handle on the Hebrew scripture. Let's put it up, and let's see what he says about it. He said the naming, you know, Adam and Eve had to name every animal God brought to them. And you have never thought about it, but the naming is super important. You just, well, it's just, you know, it's not man. That's a stork. That's a lion. Oh, hasn't he had fun? How in the world did Adam remember all these things? He had no computer. <laughs> I think he had a bigger brain than we have. Or less messed up. This is what Arnold Fuchtenbaum said. The naming was the first exercise of man's Dominion. And whatsoever the man called every living creature, that was the name thereof. Man begins exercising his dominion over an animal kingdom with the act of naming the animals. The ability to name or rename is the exercise of dominion and authority. He gives a few examples. In Numbers 32, 37, and 38, the Reubenites exercised lordship by naming and renaming cities in captured territories. He goes on to say that in 2 King 23:34, Pharaoh Nico used his dominion over Judah to change the name of King Eliakim to King Jehoiakim. You can read that all in the Bible. In 2 King 24:17, the king of Babylon used his dominion over Judah to change the name of King Mataniah to King Zedekiah. So Adam's naming of the animals was the exercise of man's authority over the animal kingdom, and so it was. Oh, by the way, we have some people that are pregnant right now, and you're going to give that baby a name. Do you know what that means? 
Parents, you have full authority over that child. Which then tells you a government who usurps that authority is under Satan's control. Let me say it again. A government that wants to usurp that authority of a parental authority given by God is a satanic intrusion into God's divine plan. This is not a political thing. This is a spiritual thing. The one who names has the right to name the child is the one who has full authority over that child. That's a part of Genesis chapter 1. God gave that to Adam. And you know what? We don't need to have from Adam only all the curses he he inherited with his rebellion. We shall also have all the things which are good. And that's one of it. God never took that back. We know today, and I mentioned that earlier, today's modern day, you know, land of Israel is known as Palestinian territory. The Romans changed the name of that land from the Old Testament name Canaan. And for the Jewish people, promised land. And the Romans said, we conquered it, we have the authority, and the first thing we're going to do is we're going to change the name. 2,000 years later, the world is still fighting Palestinians against Jews. Showing that the authority does not belong to the Jewish people, but to the Palestinians. Quite amazing, isn't it? So going back to Genesis, you you now see in biblical times, and even today, the privilege of naming something typically communicates the asserted authority, period. That's so important. What is the result when that happens? You're going to be challenged. And Adam and Eve got immediately challenged in the perfect environment, the garden. And they got immediately challenged. And we know the one who showed up the Bible calls him the serpent or Satan, at that time the serpent. Serpentine, the Hebrew word there is nachash. Nachash literally means the shining one. It's uh, what they also in the Old Testament say, as the sons of God rejoiced when God created the heaven and the earth. They shouted for joy. These are spiritual beings. Sometimes we call them angels. Sometimes we call them archangels. Sometimes we call them something else. These are all job descriptions. They're actually Elohims, which the Hebrew simply uses as an expression of a spiritual being who does not live in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm. They They live here on earth, but you can't see them. When you're in the spiritual realm, you can't see it. Sometimes they manifest themselves and sometimes not. But so, that Elohim shows up. And obviously, here's the thing. God just gave Adam power and authority over this creation down here. Correct? And listen to this. Here comes a created being from another dimension. And Adam and Eve believe a creation a creature that was created, listens to that creature, puts faith into the statement of that creature rather than in the creator. We don't have to go too far to figure out while Satan wants to push us to worship the creation 
rather than the Creator. We sometimes think, well, this is only, you know, uh, global warming or whatever. No, 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 no. Every created being that includes you and me, we have no authority to usurp God's authority. No one has that authority. So when we listen to a creature rather than the creator, we are going into the same rebellious territory Satan went. And he got our first pants. And what was his result? What was his benefit to doing so? Let me write that down for you, or hold it down for you to see it. Satan's success in inciting this rebellion effectively removed the office of theocratic administrator from the earth. As Satan at that point became the ruler of this world. When Jesus was walking among us, he said to the people of his days, the ruler of this world is Satan. Is Satan. But he finds nothing in me. He refers directly to that incident where the creature has more to say than the creator. And we act accordingly. Now, the theocratic administration left the earth. Satan is not a theocratic administrator. He is not appointed by God to rule and reign. He stole it from Adam. And how many of you know just because you steal something, that doesn't make you the owner of what you stole? A lot of people think the more I can steal and cheat, the more I can claim ownership. That's robbery. That is against God's law. And that was done exactly the way Satan did it. Misunderstanding this biblical truth will make you miss the entire storyline in the Old and New Testament. And the Jewish people missed it. And when the Messiah showed up, they called him the king, not the Messiah. We're talking here about ruling. We're talking here about what's going on with kingdom. I'm going to lead you slowly over the next four or five weeks to this step-by-step step because so much to learn about the kingdom and where our limitations are, and where our authority lies, by the way. Charles Ryrie, in his book, Basic Theology, says this. He says, why is an earthly kingdom necessary? You know, God could have said, hey, Adam and Eve, I give you a few assigned tasks, but I keep the kingdom authority in my hands. No. Did he not receive his inheritance, that's talking about Jesus, when he was raised and exalted in heaven? Remember, Jesus was not raised and exalted on this earth. He was raised to back to full authority in heaven. And he sits now on the right hand of the Father. And for you who maybe not understand it, but he's not ruling and reigning right now from the right hand of the Father. He's waiting for the Father's command to send him back. Right now he's our great intercessor. And oh boy, do we need him. He goes on to say, it is not his present rule, uh, is, is not his present rule, his inheritance. Why does there need to be an earthly kingdom? Because he must be triumphant in the same arena where he was seemingly 
defeated. His rejection by the rulers of this world was on this earth. His exaltation must also be on this earth. And so it shall be when he comes again to rule this world in righteousness. He has waited long for his inheritance. Soon he shall receive it. This earth is a part of Jesus' inheritance. And Paul tells us that we are co-inheritors. We are part of that kingdom when he sets up his kingdom on this earth. After the fall in Eden, that theocratic kingdom left the earth. The departure left the world without the benefit of the office of a theocratic administrator. You wonder why the world is in such turmoil. But God had a plan for his Jewish people. And so he sent a deliverer to get the Jewish people out of bondage. And the deliverer was called Moses. In Romans chapter 5, Romans is jam-packed with biblical truth most Christians struggle with to understand. But we can unpack just a few verses for you in regarding to Jesus' appearance. In Romans chapter 5, this is the greatest Hebrew scholar at that time who became a born-again believer. Saul, and then what did God do to him when he hid him? He changed his name. He said, Saul, who cares about Saul? You're going to be Paul. Peter? Peter, no, no. You're Simon? You were Simon? No, no, no. You're, you're Peter. I claim full authority over you and I'm going to use you in that fashion. This is what Paul said. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, for sin indeed was in the world. Listen, before the law was given, the law was given to Moses, correct? So sin was before, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam, how far? To Moses. That's in your Bible. That's in your Bible. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, the new theocratic administrator. So Moses is a foretaste of how God is going to restore that to the real one. That's why Moses could not enter into the promised land. One little mishap and you're out. You're under the law. Who let them in? Joshua, which is the Hebraic name for Jesus. So you now see the connection. Paul is telling us that the time period between Adam and Moses was spiritually a very, very dark period. I know you say, but God took Abraham out of it in the meantime, you know, and called him out and said, you're going to be the father of faith. Yes, we'll, we'll get there in a second. In Exodus chapter 19, the first six verses, I wrote it out for you. Or one to four, we can take that. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. 
They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, listen to this. Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Let's give the next two verses. Do we have them up there too? There we go. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my co covenant, would you say that's conditional? Yeah. Whenever you see that if, that's a condition. If you indeed will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasure possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me what? A kingdom of priests. First time you find the word kingdom in the Old Testament is here. That's the first time. Up to that point, you never read that. And he said, and you shall be a holy nation. Isn't that what Paul said about us, the church? We shall be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. How well did Israel do? Mm, how well are we doing? Mm, it's just terrible, isn't it? So, what I just showed you, you can conclude that the office of the theocratic administrator that was lost in Eden was restored to the earth in a limited sense through Moses. Just as God governed indirectly to Adam and Eve in the garden, he now governs indirectly to Moses. He shows the powerful leaders of the world and Satan in Egypt that he can take his people out anytime he wants to. And he took them out. This is why you find in the Bible that Moses took the Israelites out of Egypt and when he was singing afterwards with the congregation, by the way, it's a long song he was singing. They were dancing in the wilderness. They were having tambourines. You know, those who say, oh, no, no, you can't have any rhythmical instruments in the church. That's an abomination. Well, talk that to Miriam. Talk about it. They had tambourines. They had all kinds of different things to make rhythm. Moses leads the whole million people in the wilderness into a worship song. And in that worship song, he says, and God, you have conquered the gods of Egypt. Not just Pharaoh and his army, but all the gods. They worshipped there. And here comes Moses. He is now the theocratic administrator. There was a big challenge every so often among the Israelites. So Moses, you think the only one who can speak for God, don't you? That came straight from Miriam's mouth, his sister. God, Moses didn't say anything. God says, hey, I tackle that. I know who I put in charge of my theocratic administrator. Moses was the only one. All the rest had to follow Moses. How many of you would like to say, I would have been so happy that Moses was the only one. 
No, we have a tendency to always usurp God's authority, don't we? So biblical scholars have pointed out that the Mosaic Covenant, which we just had, or portion of it, introduced a new component to God's covenantal dealings. But is just to Israel. I show you quickly a few covenants. Each one would be a sermon on its own just to debone, but it's not a part of my overall theme. The Abrahamic covenant was an unconditional covenant. This is why when we come by faith to Jesus Christ, we are called children of Abraham. Remember? By faith, not by works, by faith. So that's an unconditional. It's not about if we have a certain conditions which we fulfill. If you come by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing else will be fulfilled. It's by the grace of God. That's it. You're a child of God. The next, the Davidic covenant, was also an unconditional covenant because that deals with the kingdom. That's also unconditional. God will bring it in. He was here, but the Jews rejected him. So we're going to learn that the Mosaic Covenant is a conditional covenant, and that's the one that is connected to the theocratic administrator. And it's conditional. And they did not fulfill the conditions. And this is why Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. He knows the time has come. In 70 AD, the Romans ransacked, destroyed everything, and the Jewish people were actually thrown out of their own promised land for 2,000 years. 1948 is the first time when they got it back again. And the time starts ticking again. Wow. This is what we understand Look at Exodus one more time. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And now God started the church age after they rejected it, at the day of Pentecost. And Paul later on gives the exact, exact same description to the body of Christ. We have not replaced Israel. We have simply been put in charge to preach the gospel, this good news about what Jesus has accomplished. That belongs to you and me. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, there's a very interesting uh, portion, two verses. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. Remember, God says that before they get there, correct? He already prophesied that they're going to come. You may indeed set a king over you, but here's the condition, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as your king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Let's go to... The time when Jesus was here. When Jesus stands before the priests, Sadducees, Pharisees, and the political rulers of Rome, what did the Jewish nation say when they heard, well, he is the king of the Jews? They said, we have no king 
but Caesar. What did God say in Deuteronomy? No foreigner can ever be a legitimate king over you. Never. But they chose it. This has huge consequences. The Jewish nation has for 2,000 years no God's chosen king over them. The only chosen king who then showed up is Jesus Christ and they rejected him. From then on, the Bible says, and from then on, the Gentiles will trample over Israel and the land. Until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Is the times of the Gentiles fulfilled yet? Not yet. So you have no theocratic administrator. He went back to heaven. Therefore, you cannot claim that the kingdom is here. Quite amazing, isn't it? Andrew Wood, in his book, The Coming Kingdom, is making this comment. They're going to wrap up with this comment. He said, Although the Abrahamic covenantal promises and blessings are unconditional guaranteed to come directly to Israel and indirectly to the entire world, these kingdom conditions will not manifest themselves until national Israel trusts Jesus Christ, her long-awaited king. Because there has never existed a Jewish generation that has complied with this condition, the messianic kingdom remains in a state of postponement up until the present hour. End of quote. He's right on. Lord Jesus, come quickly. It's the answer, the prayer, and everything else. This world, the Jewish nation, will be decimated up to 80% of the entire population before they accept the Lord Jesus. Let me give you bad news first, and I'll give you the good news. The bad news for the world is, when the king comes back, and he is the only authoritative, God-ordained, theocratic administrator. He will not get this earth back without a huge battle. It's called the Great Tribulation. Jesus said the world has never seen anything like it. It will be so immense. Do you know that 75% of the entire world population will be wiped out? Read it in the book of Revelation. So when we do Wednesday night after Easter, when we start with the <coughs> kind of eschatological, well, we open the book for four or five weeks. Otherwise, you get too excited. So then I show you a little bit what's happening. Jesus will come not as a savior. He's already the savior. Anyone who comes by faith, by the grace of God, into the kingdom of God, that's your savior. He's your savior. And in the spiritual kingdom, we are in. We are in. But when he comes back to the physical and gets back what the first Adam lost, by the way, which Satan wanted to offer him by becoming rebellious against the Father, when Jesus comes back, he will fight a war the world has never seen. Every weapon man has ever come up with, in order to wage war against other nations, they will draw at the Jewish state. And then God steps in. Watch out. You and I will watch. 
he stings. He says, I want to get in there. Jesus doesn't need us. He is fine without us. We're going to watch how our Lord has become a warrior. And he will take everything back. And he will be the rightful, only rightful theocratic administrator. There will be no democracy. There will be no republic. There will be no other form of government accepted. There is one kingdom, and it's ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. His headquarters will be in Jerusalem. The topographical situation will change in the Middle East entirely. New mountains will be formed. Atop of them, he will have his palace. And he will rule and reign on this earth. And you and I will be coming with him. We have a glorified, resurrected body where we can easily move between the spiritual and the physical, between the seen and the unseen, just like Jesus projected 40 days on this earth after his resurrection. And you and I will have the same glorified body. You're talking about excitement. You're talking about a king who steps up. When the time has been fulfilled, he will not come until the time has been fulfilled. When the Father sends him, all the parables in Matthew 13, the kingdom of God is are pointing that the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews will leave this earth for a long period of time. The owner will leave. He will give you gifts and he will hold you accountable for what you have done with it. When he comes back, not before. Can hardly wait. That's the first installment of the kingdom. Who needs kingdom now theology, that garbage, when you have the real king, the way he operates? Right now, you and I are empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit. The authority is this book. The Holy Spirit will not allow you to project the gospel to anyone that is contrary to this book. This book he has given, it's the written word of God. And you know what? The church is the foundation and the pillar of that truth. But the church, like Israel, has forsaken the pillar and makes up all kinds of different garbage theology that leaves people in the dark and blind. We need to have our eyes open. We are so blessed that we have this book. We are so blessed that we have the Holy Spirit. We are so blessed that we have the freedom to get together and study these things and encourage one another. And Paul said, and with these words, encourage one another. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you. You're an awesome and mighty God. You have put a plan in motion before you even created Adam and Eve. You know exactly what's going to happen. That's why you mention that you don't know the beginning from the end. You know the end from the beginning. Lord, we want to thank you for being so gracious to us, long-suffering and kind. Even we as your children have gone many times to look for answers anywhere but in your word. And so we miss all the glorious and exciting things this world puts us into a state of stupor. 
Lord, I'm just asking you this morning to realign our thoughts. Anyone in this room who maybe never even came to the place, they said, Lord, I'm done. I need you as my savior. May today be the day. Holy Spirit, may you awaken the souls of those who are still dead, that they can experience life and life more abundantly. Thank you, Lord, for the work you do here in the church. Thank you, Lord, for having your saints around the world. They still preach the gospel. They still preach you as the savior of the world. And Lord, the day will come when we see you coming back. Not as the savior anymore, but as the king of glory. And what a day that will be. Until that day, may you keep us in your care. Protect us and guide us and use us for your glory. And we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people.